Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised up, and that all things may return into unity through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, the best laid plans of mice and men. It had been my intention to finish this series on Anglicanism by the end of this session, this semester, so that when we came back in January, we could start something new. That is not going to happen, uh, because as you can see, we have arrived at 1833, and um, there is still some time to go. And um, as it turns out, we are not going to have class next week because of the Thanksgiving holiday. And then for the next two Sundays, we are going to have a special guest speaker. We're going to have Mr. Alan Runyon, who's the attorney for the diocese, who's going to be here not talking about our legal proceedings, but rather talking about the Star of Bethlehem. Uh, Alan has done a great deal of research on a number of things. He has a great interest in theology, actually uh, studied at Oxford University, uh, theology over there. So he has a great interest in these matters, and I thought that would be a wonderful segue into the Advent season as we prepare for Christmas. So he's going to be coming, which means that we're not going to finish this session on Anglicanism until the new year, and I need at least two more classes, at at least two more classes, um, to try to finish this out. So I just want to make you aware of that, and then we'll go back to something biblical when we finish up. But today we are turning to one of the most important, uh, one of the most powerful movements that took place in the Church of England, and it would have a far-reaching effect, not just only on the Church in England, but on Anglicans throughout the world. And that, of course, is the Oxford Movement, um, started really in 1833. When I think about the Oxford Movement, and when I think about the Wesleys, we spoke about the Wesleys last week, I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24, where he said to his disciples that because of the increase of wickedness in the last days... The love of many will grow cold. And I think if you look at the history of the church, and not just the history of the church, but if you look really at the history of faithful people, if you look at the history of Israel, you see that this is true, that there are times of great religious ferment and zeal, but then what happens is that often that sort of dissipates over the course of time, and the love of many, the zeal of many grows cold. Uh, That's one of the reasons why the prophets were always calling Israel to repentance, calling Israel to come back to her first love. And it's one of the reasons why God in His mercy has always raised up great reforming figures. We talked about the Wesleys last week, but even at the time of the medieval church, we said that the love of many had grown cold, the vines and tendrils of tradition had grown up to obscure the pure gospel message, and God in His mercy raised up that Augustinian monk, that firebrand, Martin Luther, who nailed those 95 theses to the door of the cathedral church in Wittenberg and sparked a reform movement in the life of the church. And there would be others who would come alongside him, Martin Bootser and John Calvin and others, that second generation of reformers. And they would produce a tremendous, powerful, and necessary change in the life of the church. And we saw that this was true in the Church of England as well. You had the initial zeal of people like Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley, men who were so devoted to the cause of the gospel that they actually had to forfeit their lives as a consequence. 
But then what happens is that the love of many grows cold and you have to have the Caroline divines in the next century who came along to sort of reignite that passion. And then again, people's love grows cold and you have to have people like John Wesley and George Whitfield and Charles Wesley to come and light the flame against, the pilot light, if you will, of the gospel in people's lives. Well, here we are in the 19th century and we have a similar situation. The love of many has grown cold. Now, I think part of this is due, if the truth be known, to the tremendous success and wealth of the British Empire in the 19th century. I pointed out that Britain was expanding exponentially in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. When we get to the point where Queen Victoria is on the throne, she asked Benjamin Disraeli the question, just how much of the world do I reign over? And he replied, the sun never sets on your empire. And that was quite literally True, about a quarter of the world's population was under the British flag in the 19th century, by the end of the 19th century. And we said that wherever the British Empire went, the church of the British Empire, the English church went as well. And so by the 20th century, Anglicanism was the third largest body of Christians throughout the world. So this is a tremendous growth and a tremendous success. But I've also pointed out to you that wherever Christianity has gone, it's always bred affluence, but then the daughter devours the mother. And I think that's what began to happen in the English church. People began to get lax. England really was a wealthy nation by the 18th century. There was a middle class. Many nations in Europe at this point did not have what we would call a middle class. We're accustomed to having a middle class, although it's shrinking in our day. But nevertheless, many countries did not have a middle class. There was an upper class, there was an aristocracy, and there was a lower class. But in Britain, that was no longer the case. Uh, With the advent of the Industrial Revolution, many people found that they were able to lift themselves out of servitude. There is this growing class, a new class called the gentry in English society. Um, Those of you who have read the novels of Jane Austen, you know a little bit about this. Well, that's what was happening in England. People were becoming wealthy, but what happens is that that wealth, what did Jesus say? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that was the case for many people. They were reluctant in many ways to be serious about their religion. There were other things, other matters that were concerning them. But there were a few within the church who were deeply concerned about this, deeply concerned about this apathy that was beginning to pervade the English church. The lackadaisical attitude amongst the clergy in terms of how they went about their duties and their responsibilities, the cure of souls. And many of these people who were concerned about this lackluster attitude within the Church of England existed and operated out of the University Center at Oxford. They were deeply concerned about this. Many of them were very scholarly. They were concerned that the people of the Church of England had lost their first love. And for them, all of this came to a head. They didn't have a name at this point. They were just sort of a group of people who were of a common mind. But all of this came to a head in 1833 for a great many of these men. And what became known as the Irish Church Bill, or the Irish Temporalities Bill in 1833. Remember that the Church of England is an established church. 
This is something that is foreign to Americans. We have a disestablished church. We have a separation of church and state. It's written into our Constitution. And that's a good thing. You know why it's a good thing to have a separation of church and state? Because whenever the church and the state come into conflict with each other, let me tell you something, the state will always win. Because it has the power. But in England, the church was an established church. Who is the supreme governor of the Church of England? The monarch, the king, the queen. And so this was an established church. I I pointed out to you, I think last week or the week before, that in order to change the Book of Common Prayer in England, even today, it takes an act of parliament. Now you think about that. Imagine Congress trying to change or come up with some sort of a religious liturgy. Can you imagine what that would be like? But that's the way it was in England. That's the way it is actually even today. So this was an established church. And that becomes very clear in 1833 with this Irish church bill. Anglicans in Ireland, Protestants in general, had always been in the minority, as you well know. But there were Anglicans there. Ireland, by this point, was under English control. And so there were Anglicans that existed there, but they were a minority. But the Anglican minority is governed in 1833 by about 22 bishops and archbishops. But they're just a fraction of the population. But bishops are expensive. I'm just going to tell you right now, they're expensive to maintain. And that was particularly true in the English church. There were about 22 bishops and archbishops governing this small minority in Ireland, and they cost Parliament about £150,000 a year. Now, that may not seem like a lot of money to us. That would be close to maybe $300,000 today. But you need to understand that in the 1830s, that was an enormous fortune. That was an enormous sum of money, millions and millions of dollars, to control just a small minority, or minister to a small minority. And so what Parliament decides to do is to scale down the church in Ireland. It decides to cut back on the number of dioceses, and therefore the number of bishops with jobs. Now, it doesn't make these people cease to be bishops. You understand that if a, if, a, if a priest is in charge of a parish and that parish is no longer viable and the parish has to close down, the man who's in charge does not cease to be a priest, but he does cease to have a job. And what happened in Ireland was that they decided that they didn't need 22 dioceses, some of which were really not viable. They only had a handful of parishes. So what they decided to do was consolidate. They would cut down on the number of dioceses and bishops from 22 to 12. And with the money that they saved, they would use it to help the poor dioceses. Now, when we look at that, outwardly, seems like a pretty good idea. It's fiscally responsible action. And what's more, it's, it's caring for those who are, what? In greater need. What's wrong with that? Cutting down on 22, you don't need 22 dioceses. We'll only have 12, we'll combine them, they'll be healthier, they'll be stronger, and we'll use the money to support those smaller dioceses. Sounds like a good idea. Not everybody thought so. And here's why some people did not think so. And for good reason. It was because this was a decision that was not being made by the church. 
It was a decision that was being made by the state. And if the state is allowed to make this kind of a decision, even if it's a good decision, it will also be allowed to make decisions that perhaps are not so good. And some of these people who were deeply concerned about the sort of lackluster attitude, the lackadaisical attitude in the Church of England, saw this as a bridge too far. This was the state laying its hands on the bride of Christ. And the state had no right to do so. This was a decision for the church of God, not a decision for a bunch of people sitting up there in Parliament who were elected by their constituency. And so what happens is in 1833, a man by the name of John Keeble, you can see him on the far left, he was the vicar of All Saints Hensley, was invited to deliver a sermon at the Cathedral Church, the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford. And he climbed into the pulpit and he delivered what became known as the Assize Sermon, or a sermon on national apostasy in which he took Parliament to task. That the state had no right, and that's the language that he used, to lay its hands on the bride of Christ. And what he did was something not unlike what Martin Luther did when he nailed those 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. He sparked a movement. And looking back, many people would say that was the beginning of one of the most powerful reform movements within the Church of England in the 19th century. Many would say the most powerful movement. The effects of which we are still feeling even today. It becomes known as the Oxford Movement. John Keeble. Now, there were a number of things about the Oxford movement that made it very powerful, very effective. And one of those things is that it had an organized party from the very beginning. All of these men began to coalesce, and they coalesced around a group of leaders. Three in particular. Some of them you will recognize their names. One, of course, was John Keeble, who started the whole thing off, who sort of launched it by that sermon that he delivered at St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford. But the real two great leaders of this movement in the 19th century, there were many, but the two that were at the forefront of it all was that man in the middle, Edward Pusey, 1800 to 1882. He was the Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford University. In fact, this movement eventually became known as the Oxford Movement because of where it started. It also became known as the Tractarian Movement or the Anglo-Catholic Movement. But initially, it was known as Puseyism for this man, Edward Pusey. And the other man, Pusey was really the scholar behind it all. And he would write a number of articles, very scholarly articles, not surprising given his position at Oxford. But the man who was the silver-tongued spokesman for the movement, who had a very nimble mind, but could be at times a great controversialist, was that man on the far right, John Henry Newman, 1801 to 1890. He was the vicar of the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin. He was the one who invited John Keeble to deliver the sermon. And ultimately, you can probably tell by his garb, he would convert to Roman Catholicism. In fact, he would be canonized by the Roman Catholic Church in 2019. He would become St. John Newman. 
So these are the three movers and shakers. They are all priests at this point in the Church of England. They are appalled by the state's attempt to usurp the power of the church. And this starts a movement. Now, there were other things that they were interested in, but this was sort of the the pinprick that popped the balloon and got everything going. So there was an organized leadership, those three men. There was an organized center of activity, as I said. It was centered around Oxford University, hence the name Oxford Movement. They had an effective organ for opinion. This is another reason why the movement was so successful, so powerful, and its effects so long-range. It was because they had an effective organ for opinion in those days. They published a series of documents called tracts, tracts for the times, 90 of them in total, in which they set forth their ideas for a reform of the Church of England. And what became known as Puseyism would eventually morph into the Tractarian movement. Now, what are the characteristics of this new movement within the Church of England? Well, as I said, one of the characteristics was a frustration, a deep-seated frustration with the lukewarm piety, complacency of the Church of England. People like Newman and Pusey and others would say, what did Jesus say in the book of Revelation? I'd rather you be hot or you be cold, but if you're lukewarm, I'm going to what? Spit you out of my mouth. And that's exactly what they felt was going on in the Church of England. The Church of England, they believed, was lukewarm, and unless it changed, God was going to spit it out of his mouth. So there was a frustration with the lukewarm piety, complacency of the Church of England. There was also the conviction that the evangelical wing of the church, which was the most dominant at this point, was still stuck in the 18th century, stuck back there with Wesley. And the world had moved on. The world had changed. And they didn't feel that the evangelicals at that point were very effective in calling the church back to holiness. And that's exactly what they were interested in. This movement also was characterized by a strong emphasis on holiness. Not just inward piety, but an outward piety as well. You'll know them by their fruits. That's exactly what the members of the Oxford movement believed. And so they advocated a whole lot of religious practices in the lives of their followers. They began to argue for an austerity in private lives, particularly among The clergy, clergy in the Church of England were not required, and we're not required today, thanks be to God, to take vows of poverty. But some of the members of the Church of England were getting fat. They were getting wealthy. Some of them were wealthy before they even went into the church. You know, it was common in the 19th century and in the 18th century that if there was somebody who was of the nobility, let's say an earl or a duke, and he has a series of sons, the first son does what? He inherits the title, that's right, he inherits the estate. He becomes the next duke when the first duke dies. What happens to the second son? He goes into the military. And in those days, you didn't have to go to a military college to get a commission. Your father could purchase you a commission. And depending upon how much money he paid, he could purchase you a commission the whole way up to the rank of colonel. Sorry, Myron. (laughs) 
all that you had to go through with to get the eagle, man, you, your dad could have just purchased that for you if he had enough money. So the second son always went into the military, purchased a commission. What happened to the third son of a duke or an earl? He went into the church. Whether he was religious or not, he went into the church. Because these were the three most respected vocations in 18th and 19th century England. The vocation of a gentleman, of an officer in the military, and a clergyman of the church. Those were positions held by gentlemen. And not everybody was a gentleman, you understand. So some of these people were in the church. They could care less about the church. Sometimes they didn't even show up to preach a sermon. But they were drawing a salary. They were living in grand old rectories, vicarages. And this was very frustrating to the members of the Oxford movement who said, that's not what a clergyman is supposed to be. That's not what the church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to be pious individuals, holy individuals. What we preach with our lips, we're supposed to live in our lives. And so some of them actually took vows of poverty. Vows of poverty. But while they believed in austerity in their private lives, they believed in the exact opposite when it came to worship. They were strong believers in elaborate forms of worship. So all of a sudden, the stripped-down worship services of the Puritans, which had pervaded so much of the English church in the 16th and 17th century, all of a sudden, they're bringing back elaborate worship ceremonies. All of a sudden, things that had been banished at the time of the Reformation are reappearing. Elaborate brocade vestments, for example. Also, candles on the altar. How scandalous. <laughs> Candelabras on the altar. That, that was scandalous in those days. All of these things began to come back. Now, part of this was due to the time period. This was the Romantic period that was beginning in England. It was a revival in an interest in Gothic architecture and so forth. A very Romantic period. Part of that was due to the fact of the Prince Regent, George IV. He, became, he was Prince Regent, became George IV, King George IV. Now, those of you who have been to Brighton, you perhaps have seen the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, this elaborate sort of Indian model palace that he had built there. It was very elaborate. It was a very romantic period. People became interested in the past and Greek and Roman history and, and things from the Orient. Very romantic period, period of the Gothic revival. And this played very well into the Oxford movement and their desire to go back in time and rediscover practices that had been lost and bring them back. And so they did. There was an emphasis on the transcendence of God over the imminence of God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, people like Wesley and Whitfield were teaching people that the problem was that they believed that God was up there, far distant, removed, but in fact, God had come down. He was born in Bethlehem so that you might have a personal relationship with Him. You can actually have a personal relationship with the Lord of the universe. That Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. Now, I don't know who's ever said that before around here, but, <laughs> but that was the emphasis of the evangelicals within the church. But the Anglo-Catholics said the problem was that God had become sort of this 
companion rather than the Lord of glory. And so they began to emphasize the transcendence of God, the holiness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, God as judge of the world, as well as Savior. So a transcendence over imminence. Mystery and glory versus rationalism. Mystery and glory versus rationalism. What does that mean? Well, many of the Oxford movers, and I'll put a quote up on the screen in just a moment, many of the movers within the Oxford system were absolutely convinced that the Reformers had been too rational in their approach to religion. In other words, the Reformers believed that it had to be, in order to believe something as an article of the faith, you had to, number one, understand it, and it had to be able to be proven. It had to be proved by Scripture. It had to be something that you could understand that, that, was, that was reasonable. But the members of the Oxford movement believed that what that did was it took away the mystery. It took away the glory. It took away the transcendence. And they wanted to recover these things. As I said, this played very well into the Romantic period, which was, incidentally, characterized by the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, the artists of the day. One of the members of the Oxford movement, who became a great artist of this time period, they were very romantic, they did works that were very serious works, but also, as you can see, full of symbolism, was this man, Holman Hunt. That painting, called The Light of the World, there were two copies of it made, actually multiple copies, two that exist today. One is, anybody know where? That's right. One is in St. Paul's Cathedral, but not that version. That version is at Keeble College, Oxford. Keeble College, named for John Keeble, which was a college started at Oxford at the time of the Oxford movement. To what? Train clergy in the style of the Oxford movement. Now, you can see... It's a magnificent painting. It's filled with all kinds of symbolism, but it is not realistic. It's not realism. It's filled with symbolism and glory and mystery. Jesus is the light of the world. That was typical of the Oxford movement. Now, because they were calling the church away from its complacency, back to a, a passionate love of Christ and a view of the church as something more than just an institution, but as a mystical body. That's why I prayed that prayer at the beginning. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. Because they believed that and because it was a necessary call in the life of the church at that point, there were many who initially were supportive one of whom was the Bishop of Oxford. This is how he put it. He said, they, that is, Keeble, Pusey, Newman, he said, they are forming at this moment the most remarkable movement, which for three centuries at least has taken place among us. A reform movement. The system in question, instead of being an easy, comfortable form of religion, adapting itself to modern habits and luxurious tastes, is uncompromisingly stern and severe. 
laying the greatest stress upon self-discipline and self-denial. This form encourages fasting and alms deeds and prayer to an extent of which the present generation at least knows nothing and inculcating a deference to authority which is wholly opposed to the spirit of the age. So far, so good. They would, as I said, have an organ for disseminating their ideas. They didn't have the internet in those days. They didn't have radio. They didn't have television. But they could publish, and they published widely. They produced 90 tracts from 1833 to 1841. As I said, they called them tracts of the time. And in those tracts for the time, they called the church to a number of things. They called the clergy to a sense of the church as the bride of Christ. Again, that wonderful and sacred mystery. Not simply an institution. Now, that's one of the things that we sometimes fall into, don't we, as Christians? We, we treat the church as though it's some sort of corporation. I've been on vestries, for example, where you walk in and you feel as though you're in a board meeting. And these are the board members, and they sit there and they're going to make decisions that are spiritual in nature, but they haven't even taken the time to pray. And that's the way many people operated at this point. But they said that's not the way it can be. The church is not an institution. It is a wonderful and sacred mystery. It is the bride of Christ. That's how the apostle describes it. They emphasize the calling of the clergy as a gift from God. It is a vocation. It is not something that you can just waltz into. It has to be a calling from God. And they emphasized on the church not, this was a big one, not being subordinate to the state. The Oxford movement pushed hard and long for disestablishment. They felt that the worst thing that had befallen the English church was the fact that it was connected in some way to the state. I'll be honest with you, that's one that I think is a valid criticism. I think the Church of England would probably enjoy a new renaissance if they could somehow be disestablished. Because in the minds of many English people, the church is nothing more than an extension of the state. And if you're frustrated with the state, you're oftentimes going to be frustrated with the church. So all of the things that we love, the pageantry, the pomp and the circumstances, many English people see that as just an extension of what takes place with the royals. Now, the results of this Oxford movement were profound and lasting, as I said. Some of them we still feel today. For example, they stressed a greater emphasis on the frequency of Holy Eucharist as the principal worship service on Sunday. When the Oxford movement began, the vast majority of churches in England, almost every parish church in England, had communion maybe once a month. Some four times a year, and that was it. They were arguing that Holy Communion ought to be celebrated as the principal service on Sunday morning. Why? Because it was the Lord's Day. By the end of the 20th century, the majority of Anglican churches, the majority have communion as the principal worship service every single Sunday. That's the direct result of the Anglican, of the Oxford movement. 
even here at St. Philip's, and I think we are the only church left in the diocese, by the way, the only one in the Diocese of South Carolina that still has morning prayer as a principal service on Sunday. And you'll notice we don't even have that every Sunday. That is the direct result of the Oxford movement. They emphasized more ornate ceremonial. You'll notice that we have candles on the altar at St. Philip's. Prior to 1830, that would not have been the case. That would not have been the case. And incidentally, there would not have been an altar. There would not have been that marble altar. All of that that you see up there in the chancel area today, that is the direct result of the Oxford movement. You would have had a simple table up there because an altar implies what? Sacrifice. And the reformers would have rejected that completely. The story is told at my old seminary, Virginia Theological Seminary, that they had um, a table up front. Virginia was traditionally a low church evangelical seminary, so you didn't have the Oxford movement. They were not allowed, for example, to have anything like incense or anything like that in the chapel. They actually, after I graduated, the dean allowed them to have incense in the chapel, and the chapel burned down. And I'm saying there's a direct link because somebody failed to put out the incense and the incense caught the sacristy on fire and the whole chapel burned. But in those days, you were not even allowed to have incense because that sounded like something papist, although it's biblical, by the way. But they brought in all of these rituals that were regarded as Catholic rituals. They reinstituted the practice of auricular confession where you made your confession to a priest and received absolution. They renewed the monastic life. There have been no monks, no nuns, in the Church of England since the time of the Reformation. All of a sudden, monastic communities are back. People taking vows of chastity, vows of celibacy, orders of nuns and monks, which still exist in the Anglican Communion today. They established Anglo-Catholic theological colleges, like Keble College, to train up clergy in the way that they should go. They put a special stress on the necessity of apostolic succession. That is, they believed that only those churches that had bishops who they believed could trace their lineage back to the apostles were legitimate churches. So the Oxford movement believed that the only real churches in existence, everything else was a sect, but the only real churches in existence were the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and Anglicans. Presbyterians, nonconformists, all of those people, they weren't real church because they didn't have bishops in succession. And they had a strong, as I said, call for disestablishment. Now, this movement was pervasive. It was powerful. A lot of it was because it was organized and because its leaders were very eloquent and persuasive men. But questions began to arise, at least in the minds of some. Some of those questions had to do with the fact that many of the practices that the Anglo-Catholics were bringing back, and that's what they called themselves, Anglo-Catholics, many of the practices that they were bringing back seemed to be a return to the pre-Reformation days. And there were enough people in England who remembered Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley and the sacrifices they had made to get away from the abuses of medieval Catholicism. 
The second thing was this. Newman himself began to openly question the reformers. He began to openly question people like Luther, Calvin. He began to wonder if the Reformation itself had not been a huge mistake. Now, you can imagine how that went over. But he was a very eloquent man. But just to give you a taste of this, this is a letter dated December 28, 1835, written by the Reverend John Harold Froud to John Henry Newman. Froud was the youngest member of the Oxford movement. He wrote a number of the tracts for the Times, and he was a profound impact on Newman and others. And here's what he wrote to Newman. In 1835, two years after the movement begins, he said, I really hate the Reformation. Really, I hate the Reformation and the Reformers more and more and have about made up my mind that the rationalist spirit they set afloat is the false prophet of Revelation. Now, folks, that's not mild language. That's the language of hate. I hate the Reformers. I hate the Reformation. I hate what they did. What he's basically saying, it was all a mistake. We should have stuck with Rome. And he was not alone. Newman was at that point as well. But he had such a love for the Church of England. He'd been raised in it. He'd actually been a product of the evangelical movement within the Church of England. So he was reluctant to leave it. But he went too far as well. A bridge too far. I call it a bridge across the Tiber. He wrote the last of the tracts. No tracts would be published after he published Tract 90. And what he did in Tract 90, entitled Remarks on Certain Passages in the 39 Articles, was he attempted to reinterpret the 39 Articles of Religion according to Anglo-Catholic views. Now understand that in the Church of England at this time period, in order to be a priest, you had to subscribe to the 39 Articles of Religion. Now, we've talked about the 39 Articles in here before. They are a Reformed statement, hammered out by the Reformers, by Cranmer in particular. And when you look at the historical context, they were clearly meant as a polemic against Roman Catholicism. So if you're going to be a priest in the Church of England, which is what Newman was, you had to subscribe to those. How could he do that, believing that the Reformation was a mistake? The only way he could do it was if he somehow reinterpreted them in such a way that he softened their Reformation views. So, for example, he began to argue that the Reformers, the English Reformers, never meant that Scripture alone was the authority for the church. The rule of faith should not be the scriptures, but rather the creeds of the church. The Nicene Creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. He argued that we are not justified by faith alone, but baptism is the moment of salvation. So he argued for baptismal regeneration. He argued that there were not just two dominical sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, there were actually seven sacraments. And finally, he argued 
that the Church of England was not opposed to the doctrine of transubstantiation, in spite of the fact that the article only condemns one view of the Eucharist as inconsistent with the teaching of Scripture, and that is transubstantiation. Now, if you look at his views, seven sacraments, transubstantiation, baptismal regeneration, the creeds being the rule of faith, what does that sound like? It sounds like Catholicism, doesn't it? And that's exactly what it was. But he's trying to reinterpret the 39 articles. Now, everybody, even his allies, recognized that that was a fool's errand. What they didn't recognize what this was, the, was that this was a last-ditched effort by a troubled man to remain in the church that he loved. And in the end, what he discovered was that he could not do it. Even the Bishop of Oxford, who at the beginning had been sympathetic to the cause, condemned this. He said, the articles are plain in their meaning. We know the historical context. We know the sacrifices made by those who have gone before us. No, you cannot, you cannot reinterpret these in this way. And the result was that on October 9th, 1845, with a heavy heart, John Henry Newman left the Church of England and went to Rome. By the end of his life, he would be a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church. Incidentally, in the Roman Catholic Church today, because he was a great intellectual, all of the university parishes are called Newman Centers in honor of him. And as I said, in 2019, Pope Benedict canonized John Henry Newman, former priest in the Church of England, as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. Now here's the irony. Pusey, Keeble, and the others remained in the Church of England. Frau died. He died from tuberculosis, so he never had to make the choice. But Pusey and Keeble and the others remained in the Church of England. But there were some, Newman being the most notable, who left and went to Rome. Now, what's the legacy of all of this? I think there are some positives. I think there are some negatives. One of the most notable results of the Oxford movement is that it produced three streams within Anglicanism. An evangelical stream that comes out of the tradition of Wesley and Whitfield. A broad church stream that was somewhere between the zeal of the evangelicals and the mystery of the Anglo-Catholics. And then it produced the Anglo-Catholic stream as well, the high church ritualist stream. But it's important to understand that with the Anglo-Catholics, it was not just about ritualism. It really was about theology. But ritualism was certainly reflected in all of that. I think the greatest danger that the Oxford movement produced, while it produced some good things, care for the poor, uh, a, a, a desire to see the church as more than just an institution, uh, an emphasis upon disestablishment, all those things were good. But what Newman did in trying to reinterpret the 39 articles was he set a very dangerous precedence. And it's what many people still try to do today. They want to have their cake, and they want to eat it too. And so what they'll do is they'll take the Bible, or they'll take the prayer book, or whatever it is, and they'll try to reinterpret it according to their own ideas or their own spirit of the age. 
And if Newman had succeeded in doing that, many of the issues that we faced in the 20th century that led to the split in of Anglicanism would have happened 100 years earlier. So I think that attempt to rationalize his decision to remain in the Church of England was a huge mistake. And thanks be to God, even those who were his allies recognized it for what it was. Now, the Oxford movement did not affect America as dramatically initially as it did England. It did make its way over here. It was called Puseyism in those days. But when it was really beginning to take off in America in the 1850s, um, we were dealing with other matters. The secession crisis in 1860, the war between the states, and as a consequence, we really didn't deal with a lot of the ritualism. But we dealt with it afterward. What was a huge movement in England from the 1830s through the 1860s would be postponed, but it would come roaring back in the 1870s and the 1880s here in America to such a degree that it would ultimately lead to a split within the Episcopal Church here in America. There were some who believed that all of this ritualism, all of this was a return to Catholicism. It was a betrayal of the tradition of the Reformers. And as a consequence, two men in 1873, the Bishop of Kentucky, Charles Cheney, and a priest from Chicago, the Reverend Charles, excuse me, that shouldn't be right, that's not the Reverend Charles Cheney, a man by the name of McElhaney, formed a new denomination. That new denomination in 1873 became known as the Reformed Episcopal Church. And that Reformed Episcopal Church is still in existence today. There are a number of Reformed denominations or parishes here, right here in Charleston. It's, for the most part, an African-American denomination in the South, in the North, almost exclusively white. But what it was designed to be was to be a denomination that was loyal to the traditions of Anglicanism, but reformed Anglicanism over and against the ritualism of the Oxford movement. Now, they split off. They were separate. But in the 20th century, they would be reunited under the umbrella of the Anglican Church of North America. So we are now as members of the Anglican Church of North America, back in full communion with the Reformed Episcopal Church. But to learn about that, you're going to have to come back in the new year. <laughs> and we'll talk about Anglicanism in the 20th century, the profound impact that the 20th century had, the scientific debates, the arrival of Charles Darwin, for example, and the publication of the, On the Origin of Species in 1859, We'll talk about the tremendous impact that the First World War, the Great War, had on the church in England. We'll talk about all the debates, the liberalism that took place in the 60s. We'll also talk about Bishop Pike, Bishop Spong, and all of those colorful characters, and how we got to where we are today. But all of this, this Oxford movement, it is still with us in many respects today. I've always considered myself an evangelical. Everybody considers me an evangelical. Low church party in the church. A few years ago, we had our 300th anniversary at St. Helena's, where I was the rector there. We were founded in 1712, and this was 2012. We were having a 300th anniversary. When we were established just as St. Philip's, we were part of the Diocese of London. So we invited the Bishop of London to come and preach the service. We didn't expect that he'd come, but he accepted the invitation. 
and he came, and it was a wonderful time to have the Bishop of London there. Um, he actually came with a document from that time period, from the 18th century, establishing St. Helena's Parish in the colony of South Carolina. So uh, that was fascinating. He even had the title deed to the Craven Street where I lived. So, and he, he pleaded with us to come home to Mother. But at any rate... <laughs> But what was fascinating was when he, um, we were making the arrangements for him to come, um, his secretary asked, well, um, are you a high church, low church pair? What, what is your tradition? And we said, oh, we're low church evangelical. And he said, well, what do you want him to bring? And I said, I want him to bring cope and mitre, you know, the bishop's hat and mitre. You know, we wanted all the pomp and ceremony and everything. She said, well, okay. When he got here, he said to me, I thought you said you were low church. And I said, well, we are. He said, no, you're not. He said, you're high church. He said, in England, low churchmen don't even wear robes. They don't have communion but once a month. They wear coat and tie. He said, you people are the lower side of high. <laughs> he said, you're evangelical in your theology, but you're Catholic in your worship. That's the result of the Oxford movement. So we're still living with it today. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer and then we'll go to worship the Lord as the church, that wonderful and sacred mystery in the beauty of holiness. The one who is transcendent but also eminent, God with us. Let us pray.